Hello, and welcome to The Runs, the podcast in which we talk about runs of comic books. We got a really good show for you today. I'm very excited about it. I'm your host, Ryan Alexander Tanner. We're going to talk about the first seven issues of Spawn, written and illustrated by Todd McFarlane, uh, which many people are on the edge of their seat about. And more importantly, my guest this week is Matt Bors. Matt Bors, like most people who like to discuss Spawn, is a twice Pulitzer Prize nominated political cartoonist. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of The Nib, the best source online for political, journalistic, and nonfiction comics. He was the artist and writer of a syndicated political strip for close to 20 years, I believe. It ended just last year. 18 years, sorry. Close to 20. That's 18, mathematically. And uh, he's created many comics that have been memed to death. If you've ever looked on Twitter ever, you've probably seen a Matt Boer's illustration, usually in response to someone saying something stupid or progressive. I would say in some ways this podcast was born out of just wanting to talk with Matt Boer's about Spawn. So <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, so welcome, Matt Boer's. Yeah, thanks, man. We've been uh, we've been circling around having a big discussion around spawn uh for maybe years i think i think i'd say it's about 75 percent of how i know you or why i know you but (laughs) so first just some general context for what we're going to talk about which is the first seven issues of Todd McFarlane's spawn that is the run written and illustrated entirely by todd mcfarlane shifts a little after that which i'm sure we'll touch on So Todd McFarlane got popular in the kind of mid to late 80s, drawing The Incredible Hulk on Peter David. That's another run I want to do one of these days is Peter David's Hulk run. Then he moved on to drawing The Amazing Spider-Man in 1988 and where he became like an untouchable superstar of comics. Uh, I'd say he he visually redefined that character of Spider-Man. That was kind of something he did really well was his take on a character was really unique. In 1990, he launched a new Spider-Man title, The Adjectiveless Spider-Man, and he wrote and drew it himself, uh, proving that writing was not important anymore in 1990. Uh, It's one of the greatest, the best-selling comics of all time, Spider-Man number one, and uh, probably one of the worst comics ever written. Uh, So... (laughs) He did that run for about 16 issues, and then he quit comics entirely. He was going to move on to something else. But then in 1992, he became one of the founders of Image Comics. All the top comics artists at Marvel Comics, plus Jim Valentino, all quit and formed their own uh, indie label, first under Malibu Comics, and then they split off and became their own thing. Uh, and sort of revolutionized the comics industry in some way, and then may or may not have directly led to the crash of the comics market, which is a whole, uh, not really what we're going to get into today. But Spawn number one came out in 1992. It was the second image title. Young Rob Liefeld's Youngblood was the premier title a month after Youngblood number one. Spawn number one came out, sold 1.7 million copies. This is one of the best selling comics of all time we're going to talk about, which is why. You can probably find it in a 50 cent bin if you're looking for it. But at the time, many people bought multiple copies, sure that it would pay for their children's college. I got uh, my single copy that I bought when I was nine right here. Right. We're going to, yeah, we're going to talk about that. So, and it came out not quite monthly. 
for some time and uh, still going strong today. And uh, Spawn was a character that Tom McFarlane created as a teenager. A few of the image characters were were teenage creations. So yeah, this is the first seven issues. It's the first, you know, the initial run of the series. And uh, all right, here's the moment I've been waiting for. Matt Boers, what is your relationship with this run of comics? <laughs> well, I guess, you know, the first thing everybody should know is that I, as I mentioned, bought Spawn when I was nine years old in 1992, and then uh, continued reading it uh, until today. 30 years later, I read Spawn monthly. I have every single issue of Spawn and every offshoot that they've ever done Sam and Twitch, Curse of Spawn, you know, Dark Ages Spawn, all that stuff. Um, which might, you know, at first you might think that I'm like a Spawn super fan, but it sort of didn't happen that way. I mean, I loved it when I was uh, a kid and then I kept reading it um, mostly because of Greg Capullo's like awesome artwork, uh, who he'd illustrated a lot of the issues starting in like the twenties or thirties until issue 100. And then at that point in time, I was an adult and uh, I just decided to keep reading it because it was like this tether to my childhood and, you know, how, how long do you get to read? I was dropped. I had dropped most things by then. And how long do you get to read a serialized book like that? And then I've, um, yeah, 20 more years passed and I'm still reading it. And I sort of, you know, I've gone through phases and any longtime spawn reader of which I don't know how many there are, there's gotta be at least a few thousand of us weirdos. You know, we'll tell you there's been some major ups and downs in the series, all sorts of changes and status quos and everything. And sometimes some years I was, you know, reading it ironically, or I was, you know, it was like this oddity where I would bring up at parties with like comics people like you. And I'd be like, I actually have read Spawn for 25 years. And you'd be like, what the hell? Um, but now, now I'm like kind of a full circle and I'm just, I enjoy it. And uh, I'm an enthusiastic Spawn fan again. So you and you bought these issues as there did you buy the first issue when it came out? You know, I I was thinking about it and I have a, a distinct memory of buying number four first with uh, that's with Violator on the cover. Mm-hmm. And uh, my copy here has the barcode on the front indicating it was a newsstand version because <laughs> I bought it at a place called the News Depot in uh, Canton, Ohio, where my dad would go buy like cigars and magazines and they had a comic, a spinner rack. And I bought that one first and it blew my mind. And, you know, we'll talk about what's in it, the fight between Spawn and Violator. And the the artwork was just insane. And um, so I must have gone back and and bought the first three then after that. But that was that was just around the time that my comics, you know, I wasn't reading uh, Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man run and Chris Claremont's X-Men and stuff like that. I mean, I was. I was, you know, nine at the time. So this is, I was just getting into this stuff then. And like Jim Lee's X-Men run and then everything that was done at Image was basically like my formative comics reading stuff. Other thing, you know, I was reading Mad Magazine too. My dad like pushed that on me when I was super young. But this, but the beginning of Image was what I really remember is like getting getting me extremely into comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think our whole generation, I think I'm a year older than you, but we're about the same age um big picture wise we're you know yeah basically the same age yeah i have so many things to say about this um one is so i reread these i've read these comics a billion times but not in a long time and i don't know if there's a thing that exists that i'm 
so able to both completely tap into the like wonder of it from reading it as a kid. Like I read the first issue so many times that it's so imprinted in my mind. And like that young mind reading is still fresh where I remember like looking at this image and just being like, this is unbelievable. And also (laughs) as an adult being like, this is terrible. This is like, <laughs> well, this is unreadable. So it's, it's both that it's like the best worst thing. It's like uh, both. And yeah. And there's I, things I really give it credit for and things that are unspeakably bad about it at the same time as I read it. But so I read these, I would say Tom McFarlane was the first comics creator. I was a fan of, I had older brothers. So uh, I was kind of, like things were a little ahead of me or were ever present. So Tom McFarlane on Amazing Spider-Man was a thing and Venom was a big thing in our household. Definitely the first, yeah, comics creator whose name I really knew was Tom McFarlane. And then when he took over, when he started the adjective with Spider-Man, I have a really distinct memory. This still defines my relationship with my older brother. I remember really clearly my oldest brother really bugged our mom to give him money to buy multiple copies of the first issue of Spider-Man. Then he came home with like maybe four of them. There's the bag (laughs) copy and the green cover and the silver cover. And like the, the length of the dispute between the two of them that he had to give his younger brothers copies because there were multiple copies. And he was like, no, (laughs) you have to buy multiple copies and have them. And these are going to be worth so much money and you don't understand in that he, you know, I think I finally got a gold, which was the second printing of the first issue. And it was sort of like, you can read, you can have that, but it's really mine. It was that kind of a thing. (laughs) But, and then I remember seeing an ad for the early image comics in Marvel comics, just in that ad space. And uh, this older guy we knew, who was a friend of our uh, mom's, sort of explaining this, like, oh, yeah, all these top artists are all going to start their own label and their own comics. And it being like, what? Like this mind-blowing idea. And so I really, like, waited for Spawn number one to come out with, like, great anticipation. And I remember getting it as it came out and just, like, reading it over and over. And that's one of the things where I think it comes up a lot in this series of, like, did you have to be there? I think this is a major. You had to be there. Like, sure. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't put Spawn one through seven in you know uh, anyone's hands that's an adult and be like, you gotta. If you read one run, it's gotta be this. <laughs> Check this I, out. <laughs> oh, uh, I would but- just say that there's 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 other Spawn runs and that if I was going to recommend uh, some sort of distinct spawn run, I'd probably give people. Yeah. I mean, you had to be there and, uh, but it is, it is, you can see like Todd McFarlane's creativity, just like jumping off the page. I mean, he's doing whatever he wants to do. And, but even too, I mean, one thing to keep in mind that sort of a time capsule is like, the the computer coloring was even like when you look at the cover and like the green glow in his hand and that it's reflected in his other hand like mm-hmm. i had ne- you'd never seen anything like that you'd never seen like uh color gradients in a comic book before really like so they didn't just do these like uh, uninhibited creator owned series but they also had all these production quality uh, yeah. kind of priorities that they wanted to do that they were finally able to do. And then I guess Marvel later bought 
Malibu to acquire their coloring process. That's why that company was purchased. But Malibu was kind of innovative in comics coloring. But there was a production quality to these two. Like it literally didn't really look like anything you'd ever seen before. Yeah, and I think the coloring um, holds up holds up for the most part. I mean, mm-hmm. com- comics that are just a few years older, or maybe even a year older, or coming out at the same time, absolutely do not hold up. Um, and yeah, I think it set a bar for coloring where I was, you know, of the generation of people and readers and artists who that the pre-computer coloring art is just like, for the most part, I don't like it. Like it just, it just comes off as incredibly dated. Uh, some of the, <laughs> some of the transition to color, computer coloring was obviously rough. I think the what you said about Malibu studios also happened a little bit with Wildstorm mm-hmm. because they developed a big like coloring uh, process and they were doing production on a ton of books. I mean, they Jim Lee kind of flipped that to uh, DC for this like lifelong, you know, president CEO type role. Um, so it was about the, you know, the characters, which they haven't done a lot with, honestly, No, I'm sure, but I'm sure it was, I, I think it was at least in part about like acquiring their studio process as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, and they're creative pool. Yeah, and the other thing I want to want to share as a as a personal experience anecdote with these is that um, so then I read Spawn. I collected Spawn. I was like one of my top series, and then there was a point where some issues came out out of order. Um, there's a lot of messy stuff in these first right. bunch of years. So I think was it issues like 16 through 19 came out after number 20 or something like that. I might be getting the numbers a little off. But anyway, I remember we had like a staff development day off from school and the first 25 issues all of Spawn had come out by that point. Uh, 25 being the Mark Silvestri image X month issue. And I was like, I'm going to read every issue of Spawn. You know, I was like in probably seventh grade at that point. I was like, all right, I'm just going to take this day and read every issue of Spawn. I have them all. I've collected them. And I remember reading them and getting to about this point, I think maybe around issue seven and like a light came on and I was like, these comics are terrible. And it was like (laughs) one of those like moments where my youth, went away you know but it was like i remember like specific moment of revelation that like this is not a good comic book and i had other comics that i continued to read that kind of kept me as a a comics lifer but i think 25 was the last issue of spawn i ever read actually i don't know if i've read ever been able to get through an issue after that oh well we'll have to uh (laughs) i'll have to pull you aside after the podcast and and give you all the the entire canonical history and recommend uh individual runs and all that stuff um, I read issue 300 when it came out and I was like, both like, I don't really understand what's going on. And also it doesn't seem like a lot has happened in the last, it's like the violator and it's like all this. Yeah. Thing. they always, it, it spun circles around and round to uh, sort of the same stuff. It does. It has progressed. Like if you're paying close attention and reading it for 30 years, there's some major changes, but also you can kind of pick it up. And if you know, the main details it's fine like the main thing that's kind of thematically changed you know that's a big part of this run and the formation of the foundational existence of spawn is is his wife and he's come back to earth because of his wife and he got tricked and now he's a 
burned corpse and his uh, best friend is having sex with his wife and has a kid with her and all that. And he's uh, real torn up about it. And he's basically remains torn up about it for at least a hundred issues. You know, it's like, he's just a miserable hero who kind of sulks in the alley and gets involved in uh, this war between heaven and hell. Uh, but that's, that's sort of the core of spawn. And then it changes. And I don't know, I guess it must've been issue 250. Wanda dies. Oh, so Wanda's, you know, that was like sort of a major thing. Wanda's dead now. And that actually the Eric Larson, Todd McFarlane run, that was like 10 or 12 issues or something. A lot of it had to do with Wanda in the end, because they were like going into hell to to battle the devil. And he like had Wanda's soul. And, you know, the reasons were kind of not well sculpted or developed is a little bit confusing. Uh, But then after that, it was kind of dropped. Um, they mentioned they've been mentioning her again recently. I'm sure they'll they'll bring her back around. They kind of always circle back around, and eventually Violator comes back, and everybody else. But uh, Wanda's dead, so you know she'll she'll be a soul, or she'll be a she might even be a Wanda spawn eventually. I mean, I'm sure Todd's going to do that. Well, let's uh, let's start at the beginning. <laughs> All right, which is uh, we open with. Uh... Basically, a lot of the early image comics are like, I read a lot of Frank Miller comics and I really liked them, but I don't really understand why they're good. Yeah, I guess when when people sort of lament the uh, Watchmen and Frank Miller effect on comics, this is kind of what they're talking about. Where like people were trying to imitate the the, t- the tone and like, pivot hard away from silver age heroics and kids comics and do stuff that was serious and blood splattered and dealt with, um, you know, bigger themes or deeper themes, darker themes, but didn't really have the writing chops to pull it off. He had the cartooning chops. Like, you know, I mean, he's cribbing hard from Frank Miller in this first issue, you know, like the, the first couple pages it opens, it's like, Oh, that's Dark Knight Returns. You got Spawn up on a chapel, and there's lightning in the background, <laughs> and you're getting you're getting exposition from TV um, news anchors and stuff. I mean, he was just kind of just Dark Knight had come out what six years earlier, and he's yeah, like, like that. and he's in his twenties. I mean, it was like he must have read it when he was eighteen, and it blew his mind. Mm-hmm. I also I always remember looking at this image. The first image ever in Spawn is Planet Earth. I remember looking at it as a kid, and being like, "Wow, he's so smart!" You know, like he knows exactly what Planet Earth looks like. And uh, one is like, that's not a hard <laughs> resource to gather. You know, it's impressive when you're ten. And also, that's not really Planet Earth. Like if you look at the continents and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think I think he's going for North America there, but it's it's a little bit off. Well, his South America <laughs> connects to Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not really sure what's anyway. Um, yeah. So yeah, Spawn kind of appears and then we have, um, this is to me, one of the main issues I had with these issues is the um, quantity of language, <laughs> like the amount of text that he'll put in one space and how one is just you're bombarded with like monologues a lot and then that mm-hmm. they never really progress the story at all like they're not serving any purpose so like you get to the third page you have this really kind of uh, effective quick uh very uh atmospheric first two pages and then you just get like these this 
page of three news reporters just like going on and on about nothing in 1987. It's really, I mean, you get some exposition, you find out yeah. Al Simmons has died and uh, which is weird too. Cause you, then you, you start in the present and then you jump back five years and then you kind of go back to the present again, but um, it, very poorly done. I would say it's <laughs> the news reporters. Yeah. You know um, it's funny because, because the news reporters are still used. Uh-huh. Uh, they are actually they were they were dropped for like I don't know they probably didn't appear for like a decade oh. or something. But he you know they're they're sort of more heavily featured these days and and a little better done. But yeah, for the third page, I, it was interesting though rereading this and being like, okay, Al Simmons is somebody that the national like cable news is going to mention has died. Like and that's not my impression at all from reading. 30 years of spawn comics that that his death would would cause that nor nor is it really uh indicated by a story in which he's a like a, a clandestine cia operative yeah you know, it seems like <laughs> you would, it, the government would intentionally not want you to know who he is right especially because they they murdered him yeah um i guess they they set it up so that it was like a you know it was fake and they they said he died a hero or whatever to to take him off the board so there's a cover story there that well, made who's him... your favorite celebrity american black ops guy <laughs> oh it's, there's so many you wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't even know my favorites they're obscure who shot osama bin laden uh i forget his name but he's yeah. like got a book and all that oh okay is it yeah, called he's, I, I shot Osama bin Laden? Because well, they weren't supposed to take credit like that, but the temptation to like be be the guy who shot bin Laden was too much. So yeah, yeah th- there is there is at least one of those seals that's like I think they're like a you know right wing wrote a wrote a book about it. Sure. That, Speaking of right wing, I it's it's pointed out by the reporters. This, this has made me uncomfortable. That uh, Al and Wanda met at the Republican National Convention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there's a little bit of like um, they're already teasing that they're together in an in in the news, and that's like I'm like, who's paying attention? I mean, that's sort the of Wanda implied. and Terry. Yeah, like it's like yeah. that level of gossip at a CIA agent's funeral is. <laughs> <laughs> This is even pre, I mean, it's not pre CNN, but CN, like the Gulf War would have taken place a year prior. So that type of the type of news that we've come to know today of like wall to wall cable news coverage uh, just started to exist then. But it's hard to imagine them being that purient, purient about uh about a CIA agent's wife and who who attended the funeral. Yeah, the the gossip and also uh wait, I want to I want to be clear. It's not the Republican National Convention, it's just the Republican Convention. They met okay. at the Republican Convention. So well, uh, you know, I mean there's uh, Terry Fitzgerald his buddy is also uh works for the same type of type of uh government agency. I mean, these are not these are not liberals. You mean uh, <laughs> national celebrity Terry Fitzgerald? Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, is Wanda's, does Wanda have a profession? Is it ever mentioned? I couldn't even tell you from reading. She does like charity work, I guess. Is you're, You uh-huh. tell me, you're the one that read every well, issue of this. I like, <laughs> I like too that the, uh, the character models are totally not established in this. Like when we see Al Simmons in the flashback, it's like not really what he's going to look like later or Wanda, like. 
she doesn't really have like a definitive she looks really different in the flashback than she'll look in two issues like i don't know that's all pretty. oh yeah well it took him a while to even work out spawn there's a lot of shots um in the first couple issues where he is a person with a nose yeah i was gonna talk about that how, you can see, and when he you takes can his mask off he doesn't have a nose and then he does and yeah yeah well because it clearly it clearly clicked with that spawns look as like a burned corpse that has a more like skull like feature with like the angled green eyes mm-hmm. was a lot cooler mm-hmm. cooler looking and like the more human you make him with lips and the nose the less it makes sense or at least you can see him kind of working it all out on the page and if anyone even has a passing familiarity with spawn's face under the mask you probably remember like the skull like corpse because that's how he was for 10 the first 10 years after he sort of works it out in the first couple issues then it's like that's how he is for then he goes back to being l simmons and then he goes back to being a corpse eventually and all that stuff but um yeah it look, the nose is jarring it looks weird yeah i remember even as a kid though being like why does he have a nose sometimes and sometimes he doesn't <laughs> Also, the pros of this, though, like these are all etched in my mind. I needed he gave. <laughs> like it's just like so. At least it's quick, you know. It's 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 quippy, but it's clip clippy, you know. But it's just um, it's very like seventh grade poetry class. Like the voice of this comic. Yeah, and the first issue also has the sort of uh, classic like image number one scene where the hero comes across like a gang uh, in the alley trying to rape a woman and uh, beats them up, which, which I feel is like a scene that's been, if I was just guessing off the top of my head, I'd be like, Oh yeah, I've seen that in shadow Hawk, spawn <laughs> young blood. <laughs> well, one thing I always, I really believe about the early image comics is that, well, a couple of things. One is like, like Jim Lee's X-Men number one was that's the best selling comic of all time. Right. And I, I believe that, nobody has ever read that comic like and well, it's you, awful i think if you try to read it it's like incomprehensible and these comics are very much for kids who are buying comics for the artwork and mm-hmm. we're sort of like released of like convoluted backstories although like jim lee managed to develop his own convoluted backstories that just happened in comics you that didn't exist um so one is that is you're sort of getting to start fresh with your own characters which i think was really appealing to kids but also the early image comics totally were the comics that adolescents would make if they could. Like they essentially read as though they were written by a 12 year, like if a 12 year old had magic powers to draw really cool drawings. Like when we were kids and we read Ninja Turtle comics and Marvel comics, and we wrote our own kind of ninja type characters, they always started with a lady getting mugged like every comic we ever made. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that it, what it's almost literally that, I mean, it's just, these guys, these are guys in their early twenties, just ha- drawing and writing what they think is fun and what's ever in their heads. Like it's now that I'm older, I can kind of see the problem at the time, like how the old guard felt uh, like completely put off by these, like 22 year olds coming in outselling them wanting to do whatever they wanted um basically you know kicking the writers off the books like they take they take over the books i mean the with with hindsight like it it's kind of nuts that rob liefeld came in to the new mutants run 
and took it over and completely changed it into X-Force and took over the writing of the book and then was just like, this is X-Force now. And I've changed it so dramatically. It's got to relaunch as X-Force number one because like Cable's now in charge. It was just, you know, Todd, like Todd's Spider-Man number one is like, and it's like the best-selling Spider-Man comic of all time. It's a completely unrecognizable Spider-Man. I mean, he's like a jock, right? Like he's not, he's not, it doesn't like play to the main things I understand Spider-Man to be, right? He's like this nerdy, insecure guy who you're supposed to relate to and who's trying to like pay the bills. And it's just like, let's make him fight Venom. Let's do this. Uh, and then, you know, let's do Spider-Man Torment, which I bought the graphic novel of. Which is really just like Craven's Last Hunt. Like a, it's yeah. like a remix. It's like a total <laughs> ripoff of a better Spider-Man comic that came out earlier. So that, you know, it is, they are really like to those of us who are reading it in our adolescence and teenage years. These were just guys who were like one decade older than us just doing like they were doing what i was planning on doing in 10 or 15 years I right was like, and then I you was grew like, out <laughs> of it but they well so mcfarlane was a little older though like he wasn't 20 he was you know maybe yeah. 30 but he had been in comics for 10 years and he had a wife and a kid a lot of like the emotional backbone of spawn comes from like being a guy with a wife and a kid and like what would well, happen I, if you know i think that that's the the main thing i was going to talk about about the, the themes in this first issue these first issues and it's actually it's working with a little bit more like serious uh themes than than the other comics were i mean what is like fundamentally what is wildcats or youngblood about i mean almost nothing really well like um it's interesting because youngblood was the concept totally failed execution but essentially is yeah the, the ultimates is basically just a what yeah. if we took the concept of young blood and made it work wildcats no, i still don't know what that comic is even about that's like it, the yeah. most perplexing comic ever yeah it's just it's x-men but they're instead of mutants they're aliens that they each have their own unique power and they're involved in a very convoluted alien war right that that sort of just is made up as it goes along but there's there's even within that you could do something with that alan moore tried to you know um you there's there's really nothing going on there underneath the surface like spawn at least is about you can you can tell it's about something i mean it's a it, it's about it's about being cucked and um being uh discovering that you're infertile and that your your wife bore a beautiful child to another man who's your best friend and that you lost everything and you were tricked and you were uh yeah you know, tricked by the devil and your world is shit now. And it's kind of like, you can tell in the, uh, in the letters pages, by the way, like um, Todd is, you know, ranting about Marvel and why image uh, image wronged him. And I, I think that was like his, his only other, the only thing he would hate more than being told that he couldn't draw, you know, Shatterstar stabbing, juggernaut in the eyeball in a spider-man right. comic which is why he quit awful. marvel because they wouldn't let him draw that yeah. right yeah yeah and that's just like got, like todd's a guy who was told no by an editor once and then just like said i'm never letting this happen to me again in my life and then he went and created image and wrote his own comic for 30 years and, and then he revolutionized <laughs> the toy industry <laughs> yeah that's what's frustrating about him there's like these people there's a couple of like the great 
all-time greats of comics, like Steve Ditko had creative differences on Spider-Man. And he said, well, then I'm leaving. We'll see how you do without me. Or Harvey Kurtzman on Mad, you know, where they like left yeah. out of creative differences and out of spite. And then like the thing went on to be more popular without them. And it's like a tragedy. And McFarlane's like the inverse of that, where he's like this idiot who wouldn't agree to anything, who is all flash and no substance and wouldn't be told what to do. And then he left out of spite. And then he like, just succeeded forever <laughs> it's like spawn is like the greatest argument towards like quality of writing not mattering yeah yeah um and god i kind of wanted to uh read just a line from the the first spawning ground column at the end of uh issue one which is kind of two columns a giant full page this it's it starts with the question why image and it's more or less a, a rant against Marvel and in favor of Jack Kirby and, you know, creators rights and not being credited and not being allowed to do what you want to do and all that stuff we know, but he starts it off in kind of a funny way. You know, he says the entire reason I'm here and doing what I'm doing can be summed up in one word, respect, or more appropriately, the lack of it. Like he was, these guys got to do whatever they wanted on books. They took them over. They kicked the writers off of books and sold millions of copies. And they were so mad about like being edited in the slightest way. I mean, it was about more than that. Obviously it's about creator owned uh, rights and stuff like that. Right. But and I'd then... like to see what David <laughs> Michelini, who was writing amazing Spider-Man, how he feels about that editorial. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, Louise Simonson, who's writing new mutants, you know, who's. Yeah. I'm sure they derailed. were aghast at what was happening to them at the time. And <laughs> um. Also, Spawn, in this in the double-page spread where we see him fully for the first time, he says, I want to have some answers. I'm going to find him, the one who framed me, which is never what this is about at all, right? I mean, I guess Jason Wynn was his boss and he had him killed, but he didn't frame him. Like, if anything, his right. death was, was, he was framed as dying a hero. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense or mean anything. Yeah, well, I think um, that's because uh the truth is is that all of these comics were made up as they went along yeah in including you know the writing and scripting being done after the fact mm -hmm. uh which isn't necessarily a bad thing um but well, i think in an article clearly it is <laughs> yeah well I'm, i think there's a way to do it i think if you're you know if you know a certain thing's going to happen or you want to do something visually and then you're like okay well i know that he's going to say something about uh jason Wynn you know, framing him at, as they lower the casket in, but I'll figure out the script later. But then that, that kind of just idea just completely took over, um, completely took over a lot of the image creators. And that's why you have someone like Brandon uh, Choi, who, who wrote Wildcats, who I understand to just be like a high school friend of Jim Lee's or something. I mean, he, the he luckiest guy. Ever. He, he didn't go on to have a career in writing comics, but he, he, he must've, been paid fabulously to script over what Jim Lee wanted to do. And in Todd's it, very interesting in the first couple issues. So he has uh, he's credited as story pencils and inks. And then um, the editor of the first issue of spawn is Wanda. I don't know how to say this last name, a uh, column Okay. And that is his wife, Wanda, his mm. real wife is named Wanda and it gets weirder. So Wanda is his wife, who he names uh, the character in the book after, who mm -hmm. 
he dies and then his best friend uh, marries her and has a daughter with him, Cyan, who I think is Todd's daughter's name too, Cyan. I think so, yeah. So in the next episode, uh, next issue, number two, Wanda is listed as the editor again. And in the back of the book, he says, he mentions her, which I, I don't remember this at the time. He says, the person I'd like to thank the most is my wife, Wanda. It's her continued support, support that keeps me going, even though the deadline and crunch seems to be all I can think of. As well as being a great wife, you also notice her name listed as the editor on this book. She's helping to guide my path so I don't overindulge myself too far and brings a fresh outlook to the book that hasn't been tainted by years of being told how an editor is supposed to affect a book. Besides, she's the only editor I'll listen to. And it's like, you know, Todd, both Todd and Spawn are clearly just devoted wife guys who they can only be tamed by their wives, right? Like this guy's like so mad at editors that the only person who'll let tell him no on something is his wife. So he's like, I'm doing a book. You're in it. Um, it's about you being cocked by Terry Fitzgerald, who is real my uh, their real life friend. Yeah, It's Todd's actual best friend. And then check this out. Issue three, editor is Wanda. Issue four, editor, Terry Fitzgerald. I Wa- fired her. <laughs> Wanda, Wanda moves off the book. I don't think ever to be seen again. And then Terry Fitzgerald, uh, his name is in the book for, for years and years and years. He's like a McFarlane Productions guy. Um, but I, I'm sure I'm, I'm not the first person to bring this up, but just how weird was it when Todd made this story and brought it to his wife and his best friend. And is like, so here's this, this is like my greatest fear on earth. And uh, you're, I don't even bother with naming the characters, different names. It's, it's you. And not only is it about you and you're my friends, but I want you to work on the book. I mean, it's very odd to me. (laughs) Yeah. So then when Terry's having sex with Wanda on page seven, yeah, it's really weird. I don't even know what to say, but I would just like to hear her editorial notes. If there's any record of that. Well, and I love that you, you know, he says that she's there so he doesn't overindulge himself, which, you know, if, if, if the early spawns are not anything, but, Todd overindulging himself in whatever he wants to draw and say and do. I would love to know what notes she had. No, I know. I would, I would, give, <laughs> I would give anything to, we'll see what we can do, but they're probably, I mean, probably he just, you know, he just paid them to be like, that's great. It's great. You know, they're like total yes, men, men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, but just getting through this first issue. So we meet Sam and Twitch. Someone's been thrown out of a window, which there's really no clear connection between them and, the larger story and you know as there is later it's still pretty weird and then a woman is getting raped by a bunch of criminals and then spawn comes in and beats them all up and then spawn has a flashback and then i really like that the woman he saved from being raped is then comforting spawn at the end of that sequence that's so weird yeah i know that talk about some things that wouldn't fly today i mean she is she's got like her top ripped off at least it looks like her hair's all messed up she's got look looks like she's got one eye closed because it's like closing from being punched or something uh, yeah drawn weird maybe but she's clearly been roughed up and she hey come on it's okay you're all right it's all over now she's cradling him this yeah. is a this is a general in hell's army who's returned to earth and <laughs> well there's just so much to unpack there i mean one thing that really struck me as i reread these one is like the tone of Spawn is really unclear to me. Like it's sort of like a gothy 
emo comics. It's sort of about a spooky guy who like whines in an alley all the time. Yes. But he's also like this badass militant guy at the same time. And like there's like a real disconnect between those two things for me like when he gets guns like in issue Mm -hmm. six or seven it's sort of like there's a logic to it but it's also like doesn't really it's just it's like two things squished together in this really weird way yeah no i would say that's an accurate an accurate description of like like the problem with spawn for a long time those are the main two like character directions like he wallows in the alley for so long like until issue 100 <laughs> that it because it almost becomes like a joke and and then yeah he he is sort of uh al simmons is is i guess you know i think obviously he has a lot of traits um like todd and he's this guy who doesn't think extra deeply about issues and it's just if there's a problem he's gonna go destroy it and go get a bunch of big guns and go kill overkill and that's that and over time they sort of write into the story that like he he's not solving problems by doing that. And he's usually being like played by these larger forces at work or whatever, but like his impulsive, like anger to just like go fight the latest guy who's bothering him is like, is, is basically a character fault that, you know, over time, I don't know if they intended or you just pick it up by kind of reading it endlessly for a decade. You're like, Spawn is at least creating as many problems as he's solving in his life. Well, it's interesting. You know, it's sort of like uh, there's a lack of self-awareness in the execution of Spawn. So it almost becomes like a Rorschach test or something for Don McFarlane. It's like, we're not on your side. Like, you're not telling us you're telling us about you, but not on purpose. Like you're revealing things about yourself. They're probably unintended, but yeah. So then we get to see the news reporters again in 92 and they have different haircuts and work for different networks. Um, And then Spawn just takes his costume off and he's all burnt up. And then he's, it ends with him crying in an alley next to a garbage can. There's a really good uh, climax to the first issue. And then Sam and Twitch are doing some, research and then we get the first shot of the devil who's like pretty great design i would say yeah mil bolgia is who doesn't become he gets that name in issue nine right doesn't neil gaiman or maybe alan moore i think actually in the eighth issue gives him that name right yeah that's probably true i don't remember specifically but that sounds about right because he is uh, yeah that's a great issue yeah well, we're not going to talk about any of the great issues. We're going to talk about these. Um, so it ends with the devil laughing and uh, Spawn's crying. And then the second issue opens with the introduction of the violator. Yeah. So this is a full page and it's uh, it's the, the clown, the short, fat uh, version that was played by John Logazamo in the movie. Um, I One thing I noticed in the early issues is that the lettering is, I think, great. Yeah, I wanted to say that. It's really Todd Klein, right? Uh, Tom Orzachowski. Oh, sorry. Ooh, oops. Okay. Who I believe is still lettering the book and letters a bunch of stuff. But frankly, looking at this, uh, he's not he's not pulling his weight anymore, at least not in Spawn. You know, now Spawn is lettered like a lot of comic books. It just kind of, I don't know, they have different. Spawn has his special caption with like the black around it and all that. But here they're doing a lot of work and. I, I think this is under Todd's direction because Todd does care a lot about lettering and you can tell the uh, Todd's one of Todd's big influences is Dave Sim. Right. Um, you know, from everything from creator rights and publishing 
to actual drawing. Like if you look at Dave Sims work, you can really see some Todd McFarlane style, uh, or I, I guess I should say it the other way around. If you look at Todd McFarlane's work, he has a little bit of a caricaturish thing that is to me, looks really pulled from Dave Sim, especially if you combine like the lettering he's doing where you're, you know, uh, violator says is telling a story and he says, but, and, but is giant and in a mm -hmm. different, different speech bubble. And then different words are bolded and gigantic. And, uh, you don't really see that anymore in, in comic books, not mainstream comic books, not in spawn, not in nothing. And I liked it. And as I'm lettering a comic book right now, I'm not going crazy with this kind of stuff. But I, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I kind of I like this. I like appreciate it more. Yeah, that was one thing I wanted to mention. It's in my notes. But yeah, the lettering really stands out in these early issues, like which are sort of like making really bad writing, not work, but more palatable, I guess, because it's like essentially the first the first two pages of this are just a big, long monologue of the violator talking about how he's going to beat up Spawn. And then the third page and fourth and fifth is just another monologue of Spawn complaining. It's like five yeah. pages of two monologues, neither of which really move the story forward in any way whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, talking about, you know, what Todd's, what's going through Todd's head and how it relates to his life, you know, he's saying, um, he gave me power, life, but it cost me my soul, my identity. I don't even think I'm human anymore. Why would my wife want me again? And it, you know, it's, it's easy to, uh, it's very easy <laughs> to play like an amateur psychologist and be like, oh, you're like processing, um, your resentment towards Marvel and like people trying to control you, uh, and your other biggest fear, which is like losing your wife or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's very interesting. I, we got to get, uh, McFarland's wife on this show. So then we see, so the, the reveal of this issue is that this kind of bug, creature demon is the same being as this as the violator who's this he's, he's referred to as the clown in a bunch of stuff but when was he ever called that in the comics well it's uh well again this is another weird thing where uh i think the story is made up as it goes along and there's mm -hmm. a little bit of a retcon because he appears as the clown figure in the beginning of this issue and then after his fight with spawn in four Milbolgia sort of curses him to stay on earth. And, and it, if you just read that issue alone, it seems like he turns him into clown and then curses him. He says, Oh, I can't change back. I guess uh -huh. that's the, the, the real thing that Milbolgia does to him. Yeah. But it, I think it would make more sense and is sort of retroactively intended to be that, you know, violator is a, a depicted as a powerful demon who can shape shift why would he choose this dumpy random guy? And then it's like, I, I, maybe I'm making this up in my head, but I think it's like afterwards later in like issue four or five, it's sort of implied that that's his, he's cursed to stay here as this like dumpy, ugly looking guy. And then, you know, he ends up becoming spawns main uh, nemesis. Uh, but yeah, it's a little incoherent. Well, and it's the uh, Alan Moore wrote the violator mini series is where we kind of get the next, Oh yeah, where he Bart he, Sears on art, Bart right? Sears, and then uh, Greg Capallo is the third issue. But so all we know for this sequence is a as a mobster is has his heart ripped out by this sort of bug eyed 
demon alien creature, which I gotta say, I gotta, I gotta say, is a, a, a totally cool design. It's amazing. I just drew, I drew the violator not too long ago because I was learning um, how to draw on uh, what's it called, Procreate, on an iPad, and uh, I was like, I'm just gonna draw, draw violator, and I did what I think is a pretty good drawing violator. <laughs> He's fun to draw. I hadn't drawn him since I was like a kid. Yeah. But the uh, the compound eyes and the big like the long thin arms and the hooks and so it's just like it doesn't look like anything else. It is like a total unique design. I try not to really talk about movies and TV on this show because it's all about comics. But one thing that stuck out to me later in adaptation media adaptations of Spawn that you don't think about when you read the comics. But I remember the animated series and I think in the movie too he would talk and his mouth wouldn't move. And yeah. I was like, oh, right. If you actually, if that thing was actual with this giant lower <laughs> jaw, like what would it look like if he was, t- would it just be like flapping constantly or like, how could he actually talk like that? So it's yeah, totally know. non-functional. Cannot, you cannot move it, eat, eat with it, talk. Um, looks cool as hell though. Yeah, no, I love that design. And you can see too, that this first kind of splash page of the violator, he doesn't have the design fully worked out, you know, kind of shifts over time, but basic idea is there yeah i mean if we could actually show people it's at both it's at once cool but he's also it's like a weird his like one hand's hanging on the floor weirdly and the other one's like i'm holding the top of his horn i'm like what is that's that doesn't look too badass that looks like a the weirdest pose you caught someone in keeping it in place i mean you can tell he's definitely like freestyling on the page a lot you know yeah so then we see the news reporters again for no reason and then uh so this is kind of an interesting idea though spawn tries to restore what he looks like and he turns into this blonde white guy and he's actually a black guy. That was one of the cooler ideas. I thought, you know, I actually thought that this happens two or three times in the early issues. And I actually thought it was a genuinely funny bit. Yeah. Because like the way, you know, there, there are moments where he does try to uh, write humor uh, into this and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but He's like, he he looks at his hand. He says, oh my God, geez, no, come on work. He goes, not again. This can't be, I'm a black man. And I think it's kind of, I think what's funny about it. And uh, is that it's this guy who's faced all of these extremely like horrible problems. He's been assassinated. He's been sent back to earth. He's been humiliated. His, his face is burned off and his wife's sleeping with his best friend. And then like the final insult is like, he he can turn into a human, but he's a white guy. And he's just like, his reaction is like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, are you kidding? Like, it's pretty, it's, a, it's a cruel irony, you know, yeah. and it's, it's a, it's kind of, it's actually, I would say it's the only clever idea and maybe ever definitely in these first seven issues. But so then this sort of overall story that we'll keep coming back to throughout this run, which doesn't really make any sense. So Sam and Twitch are trying to figure out who's pulling the hearts out of these mobsters. One is that there's never a reason why the violator's doing that. Like it's just just for no reason that's happening. And then uh not just from the detectives but also from the mob itself, everyone decides that Spawn is doing this. And again, there's no reason for that. Spawn never does anything other than wines in an alley. But for some reason, it's decided that he is the one who's doing this thing. Yeah, uh, it doesn't quite connect up. But I was going to say that I think the reason is, is that Violator's trying to frame Spawn uh, for these murders. 
I think. Do, do they? I, I, there's never any implication of that that I saw. Uh, I, I felt like there was, but I don't know where it is. I, you know, I, I, I don't know where to find it, but it's, um, as far as why, you know, also, I think it's kind of funny, the idea that the police would actually be looking into who's murdering, um, the mob, like, <laughs> which is, you know, the, the answer is probably going to be, uh, someone else in the mob and you're not really going to be able to find them. And <laughs> they're just they're like, they're approaching it as if these are like, authentic homicide they want to solve and I'm just, I, don't, I don't know <laughs> it's interesting yeah but so yeah then the violator kills another guy um spawn winds in an alley for i do think like that image of spawn like blasting his powers and complaining like is really appeals to an adolescent mind i have to say like i think on an emotional level these spawn comics are extremely effective like at least when i was 10 you know yeah um, and then I think that's it, right? Oh, and then the violator in clown form talks to Spawn. He appears to Spawn. He's talking to him. And he's basically just re- revisit the monologue from the opening. And then it's revealed while Spawn's back is turned. Uh, he turns into the big bug monster creature, which makes you think they're going to get it. And then it says next issue, Spawn versus the true violator, which uh, is a, a big mislead. I, I it's a it's a really cool shot and it could lead in directly into issue four but instead it leads into issue three which is not that uh which again i think is just sort of like a uh you know even more so than today people were not writing you know people today maybe are writing for the the trade right they're writing arcs and uh i have a sneaking suspicion that the image creators were writing sometimes page to page mm-hmm. I think, or even just drawing a bunch of pages and then sort yeah. of like fashioning them into an issue. Yeah, no, it's actually really weird. The third issue I'm finding this a lot, actually in this kind of era, like early nineties, like third issues don't seem to go very well in <laughs> like second and third issues are kind of like one big mushy issue or there's like weird repetition or, um, so, yeah, and then that cliffhanger is just basically ignored. I think he acknowledges it in exposition, but we open mm. with a big shot of Spawn's nose. You see his nose under his mask. That's the other thing about it, is that the kind of one of the hooks is that Spawn is this guy who's made a deal with the devil, and now he has amnesia, but there's no narrative um, solution. to. He just gradually remembers things as he's standing around in the alley, is what happens. Like, there's no... <laughs> process there's no detective work it's just like he just remembers his wife's name and then a bunch of memories come in in a in a splash page of his face in the third issue you're describing a lot of uh you know the way like spawn is a guy that for a long time things just happened to him right like after issue you know after the next couple issues there's just more and more characters that you might remember from the era anti-spawn and angela you know they all sort of show up to fight spawn and ruin his life more but yeah he's very very rarely is he initiating anything or working to solve a problem in his life yeah it's weird it's like i mean it's not really a superhero comic like he doesn't really even no do anything like he wears a superhero costume which sort of gets explained but it's a very weird character Oh yeah, yeah, no, he's a he's a 
super super sulker in the alley is what he is and then so then again we have three pages of caption heavy spawn standing around and it's just all like exposition about it's like emotional exposition and kind of summarizing the first two comics and then we have one two two pages of the devil and he's just got a long monologue too while he's standing around he's got a lot to say and there's no content to any of this it's like you could actually just take out all of the text and it would have pretty much the same effect yeah well if i was um his editor or his wife if yeah. i was todd's wife what would you do uh, if you're Tom McFarland's wife? Well, if I was Todd's wife on the first three issues, I would also be his editor and I would probably have a few, uh, few cuts to recommend. Um, but he, I don't think he was even, I don't even think she was doing that. She was probably just like a you know, sounding, sounding board for ideas. Um, it is, it is strange that these guys were so art driven and, you know, clearly sort of writing the books as they went. And in some cases, drawing entire issues and then having someone else like script over them. Uh, and that, that there's so much dialogue and monologue. Like, yeah. cause you would, you would think that, you know, they want to spread out and do a lot of action and stuff. And Todd has these, I mean, Todd has page after page of just, you know uh, I mean, every issue basically spawn goes over the exact same thing in his head for the reader, like runs through the problem his, you know, Wanda, the devil, his life, he was betrayed. He just goes and just he's spiraling constantly. Nothing is ever like revealed organically by the plot or there's never like a, a thing to be moving forward towards. And then we get more information out of it. So then we have one page that's so we check in with Sam and Twitch and the violator and they're both kind of having their own monologues and again we're on page six or something and no no story has actually occurred other than spawn's remembering some stuff i love this though so then spawn goes to cia headquarters to get some information on his wife we get this like really blatantly sexually harassing boss and yeah. uh here's where spawn he does something heroic fine well i guess he saves that woman in the first he's like a saver of abused women well the all the all the sort of bad guys not the uh not the main, the, the big villains he's fighting, but you know, there's like, um, it's, it's like rapists. Yeah. Workplace, uh, harassers, a, you know, a child serial killer, all these, yeah. like all these types of things that a, a wife guy, like taught, like the, the guy you want to like beat up at Fuddruckers, you know, yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> this harassing <clears throat> boss, what, before he even gets to the secretary, he really harangues him about not paying alimony spawn is fighting in defense of alimony in this comic uh that's very progressive for the time yes good well what i mean he's a he's a he's a wife he's a wife hero you said you said he's not a super there's superheroics happening in the backgrounds of these comics for women his, <laughs> spawn is an ally he uh he might have been left by his wife but well, not, not even really. That's not even fair, really. She just moved on emotionally, which she's allowed to do. Mm. And he'll come to terms with that. He's not going to wallow and become an incel. He's going to, you know, right the wrongs of the world as he comes, uh, comes upon them. Well, I think we actually Spawn sets an example for all of us. Right? Yeah. <laughs> should, you know, like Spawn actually stands up and does something. He doesn't just passively watch a CIA executive harasses secretary he not only beats him up for that but also 
make sure he pays alimony. Yeah. So good. that's good. And then the devil really likes it. The devil really gets off on uh spawn fighting for the rights of women. <laughs> um, so this is where he finds out, right. That he, she married Terry and had a kid. And then yep. he decides to go into his white guy disguise and then go see her. So this is where we meet Wanda for the first time. Yeah. Well, I want to pause on the white guy thing again, because this is, this is a, uh a good bit like, i think it's the actual funny writing because he changes the name i can't even change my appearance i keep turning into this damn white guy <laughs> worse yet it look like some california beach bum and why the hair colors why blonde that's it keep joking then maybe your nerves will settle down uh yeah so that i guess uh, part of it was a plot contrivance. maybe he had this idea in his head early on that you know he wanted to get them together uh, to talk, but he couldn't appear as a mangled corpse or as a as he looked in real life. So he turned him into some, you know, white guy so that he could have this encounter and be tortured in his head. And he couldn't tell her what was really going on, but he could still see his wife. Well, it's again, I would say it's it's the most interesting idea in any of these that he's like has to be this white guy, and then he goes and meets his wife sort of in a in a false pretense um and then this is interesting too so cyan her dialogue is definitely written by a dad of a little kid which is like Mm -hmm. one of the only other things that i thought actually kind of works in the comic that he's you tell he's at least referencing the way his own kid talks um and so then spawn when he sees she has a daughter he passes out and then there's like, again, the exchange he has with Terry and Wanda is like so bizarre, like the oversharing that everyone does and like the optimistic life. It, it's just such a weird sequence. You have to imagine, you know, um, this guy who you, who you don't know at all passes out on your porch and then, you know, you bring him inside and he's instantly like talking about his wife and who he doesn't have anymore. And you're like, I'd be like, get this fucking guy out of here. <laughs> Here's your glass of water. I'm sorry. <laughs> keep it. Keep it with you. Yeah. Keep you it. Later. Don't worry about it. We have a, we have a lot of them. Uh- <laughs> Very strange. So then, then Spawn complains in the alley like you've never seen. If you thought he complained in the alley before, that was just a warm up to yeah. this, uh, explosive uh you know he's just uh i love how he's always challenging the devil to a fight all the time let's see who's got the power it's like the devil gave you that power i think he's probably pretty formidable well and if you were to be seeing this scene as an onlooker you'd just be seeing a guy in an alley yelling at a wall like this he's not talking to anyone (laughs) well his cape is flowing though and chains clanking it's very dramatic but yeah so then uh, the clown shows up again and then he turns into uh, the big monster and he, and he rips his heart out, which is actually pretty cool. I like how he says, I live to serve the master after he pulls us. You're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, That's I love that. So then he walks away with Spawn's heart and then Spawn appears in a double page spread and has got a big gaping hole in his chest. And uh, he's about to throw down with the violer, which is a really cool image i gotta say oh yeah this double page spread and then it's like almost recreated but it's it's not exact he, he redrew it a little differently in issue uh 
an issue four. four and that's that's what i remember most because that was the one remember i bought a first yeah. as a kid but uh no both of these images are amazing really well it's baffling though i knew we were going to talk about it and i really want to know the answer of compositionally it's almost the exact same image it's like very slightly the framing is a little bit different but it's basically the same moment the same scene the same shot like there's a double page spread cliffhanger of of issue three and then issue four opens again with a it's it's a shot of Spawn's heart in the violator's hand and excessive captions for no mm. reason, basically catching you up to what you've missed with a lot of like emotional exposition. And then we get the exact same shot that we ended the last issue with. That's so weird to me. Like, I really want to know how that came about. Yeah. Well, now that you bring it up, I do think it's a bit odd. <laughs> I mean, I've, I th- I've never seen it in a comic book before in my life. Uh, I don't think, I mean, sometimes I can't think of an example, but I guess sometimes, you know, the, that the cliffhanger thing is sort of revisited in the beginning of a comic, maybe, but this is that he was just like, I'm going to draw this double page spread again. I'm going to kind of do it differently. It's better. Now there's a lot of blood dripping off the hands, his ribs. Now you can see the ribs in his, in the hole in his yeah. chest where you couldn't before. So maybe he, that's what he's, I forgot to draw the ribs. I'm going to yeah. take a, take yeah. a mulligan. I mean, again, I think it's just like, he's like, well, I'm selling 1 million um, issues every time I print. And I would like to draw that scene again because it ruled so he did like he he gets to do whatever he wanted and he wanted to draw this twice and you know what it's cool enough that i liked looking at it twice yeah it was cool i mean i remember <laughs> even as a 10 year old being like wait what why is it this? but i would say the other thing that exists to me as a possibility is that he's working a lot he's doing the production on these mm-hmm. and he's doing licensing all sorts of stuff is he drew that two-page spread he thought it was awesome it was published and then he just kind of drew it. He just kind of forgot and he drew it again. I think it's, that's the only thing that makes sense to me, even though it would have to have been pretty close together. It was like in his head and he had forgotten that he had already ex- executed that idea. And so he just did it again. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That's all I got. So I want to, I want to just create an interlude in the center of this real quick. Cause one of the things that fascinates me about this whole circumstance. So I met you, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, and you were the editor of a site called Cartoon Movement. Oh, yeah. We're both sort of like journalistic nonfiction comics guys. And that was sort of the initial kind of like connection where we met being in that world. And then that we both grew up reading this crap, I think was really (laughs) what (laughs) kept us knowing each other over time. Plus, we're both married to midwife public health people which happened later but that's very interesting to me too but um what do you make of that like how did we both end up we both i mean i think when i was 10 if you'd asked me i would have wanted to make a series like this and probably you too so how how does that happen where you become like a political cartoonist or a nonfiction comics guy well i think what you know the, the kind of comics that i wanted to make have changed over time with what I was reading and where my mind was at at the time. So for, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I, I was all about X-Men and Spawn and all these other image books and all that. And then as I got older, I got into alternative comics, indie comics, you know, Dan Klaus was Dan Klaus is probably one of the biggest um, 
influences on me in a lot of ways. Also, uh, you know, started reading Watchmen and Frank Miller's Sin City and, you know, quote unquote, adult comics and stuff like that. Uh, and I wanted to do, I mean, I, I definitely at one point in time, my early 20, not even early 20s, because by then I was political cartooning. I don't know, 17, 18, I wanted to do my own eight ball series, which I'm sure you know, many people, many cartoonists of my age have wanted to do something like that. And then um, the uh, 9-11 and the Iraq war happened. And in that period of time, you know, also coincided with adulthood. I was, uh, I turned 18, like what, two days after 9-11. Uh, got really into politics and uh, outraged about what was happening in the country. And in the lead up to the war in Iraq, I did a political cartoon for the school newspaper where I was at at the time, the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. And then I just kept going. I mean, I did like one or two a week or, and then eventually three a week. And then I went down to two and then went down to one a week uh, over the course of 18 years. And I just had some success with it. Like I got, um, I started getting in papers and paid for it. I got really into that world of like alt, weekly cartooning of uh like people like tom tomorrow and ruben balling and we're and durf we're all doing these i was like oh they're they're they seem to be making a living like i want to be like the next generation of them and so i just got really i just got absorbed in it really and i mm-hmm. and i was a very very political person i had a lot to say and i was really motivated by that and uh i would you know maybe uh became good but my early stuff wasn't good but became good at sort of making jokes and satire about the news and then i wanted to and then that kind of slowly morphed into wanting to do more you know serious stuff and non-fiction which i uh dabbled in a little bit i oh i ended up doing a graphic novel called war is boring with david axe it was like a memoir of him being a war correspondent in various conflict zones and uh you know, I, I thought that that was the career path I was on doing graphic novels and nonfiction and journalism. And it was, but in a different way, I ended up forming the nib and sort of editing other people doing that more than doing it myself. Though I've done a little bit of nonfiction there when I've had time. So that was, uh, that was sort of my career path. And then now I've kind of come back around to where I'm wanting to do fiction and genre comics and mm-hmm. stuff, because that desire has never really left me at all. And in fact, I got so burned out on political cartoons, I quit last year. And I, and I, you know, I, I did a bunch, they got many of them were memes, like you said, and, you know, I just said everything that could possibly be said about these issues. And um, so to, to, I guess on the outside, if you've been reading my political cartoons for a long time, and then, you know, you hear I'm doing like a, I'm doing this new series called justice warriors, that's sort of a dystopian mutant cop satire. And it is, it is very political, but it's also has ultra violence and mutants and all sorts of stuff in it. Um, that might seem weird if, but to me, it's just the fulfillment of the types of comics I've wanted to do my whole life, really. Yeah. I think, I mean, I connect with a lot of what you're saying there. And I think too, it's always been strange to me that there are these major divisions in comics, like you either read, superhero comics or you read indie comics or you're in the political comics world. And uh, I think this podcast a little bit to me is about just that, you know, comics are a medium. Like I like good comics and crappy comics and I like comics about people and I like comics about people fighting sometimes, or I like to read bad comics or so, you know, it's just interesting, but I've always been 
it's been interesting sort of finding people who are on that page. So it's just been a funny thing about knowing you over these years is that you're sort of of that too. Like, okay, this is sort of what worked for me is more kind of actual or socially relevant comics, but still having this kind of fundamental appreciation of like genre comics. And, you know, this is very much like, I think if we weren't 10, when this came out, this wouldn't be relevant to us at all. You know, I think, Spawn is definitely one of those, like, you had to be this age when it came out kind of a thing. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, you know, people are recommending, when people are recommending runs from the 90s, I don't know how many runs from the 90s are being recommended these days. That's the thing. Well, keep listening Um, to this podcast and you'll find out. But, you know, if you were to the casual comics reader or, you know, if if you're going, if you're, if you're, somebody's getting into X-Men, you're going to. You're going to give them the Claremont stuff, Grant Morrison. You mean, there's a lot of 90s stuff you can skip, maybe all of it. You know, it's like, (laughs) yeah, this was very important, like developmentally as an artist uh, and a kid in the 90s. But I mean, a lot of the comics objectively weren't written at a high bar at all. (laughs) Terrible. Yeah, it's just, it was an era where the, it was all about the, the package like the images the image of comics you know like what it looked like and how it read was very secondary to that yeah um well yeah, it was fascinating so anyway this is just a big fight scene this whole issue is just spawn and the violator like walloping each other and they tear each other's arms off yeah and it totally rules I mean, it's like <laughs> it was a big payoff. I remember the other thing that has been forgotten by history is that these comics, I was, you know, 10 and it would be like four months or something between issues. Like I would go to the comics or every week and be like, is spawn number four out the big cliffhanger leading up to this one. You sort of thought issue three was going to be the spawn versus violator issue. And then you have to wait another issue. And that being, you know, set a seven month wait or something. And I remember like going to the comic store over and over waiting for this when it finally came out. And then this to me was like an incredible payoff of just like this like 15 page fight scene and everyone's arms get ripped off and the devil appears at the end. It's great. And this is the type of comics I was doing at the time. Like I was drawing, make making up characters and pitting them against each other in alleys. And it was basically, you know, some combination of like, x-men spawn and teenage mutant ninja turtles stuff yeah or um yeah it's excellent and then you mentioned the the issues coming out what starts to happen in the letters pages in these and like from here on out is uh one todd is sort of touting everything that's coming out and it's like oh we're launching this new title pit (laughs) wet works is coming out and it is kind of really interesting to see like the speed and the energy with which they're launching image, but then simultaneously what's happening is you see people um, writing in and already complaining about like, are you guys like going to keep releasing issues? Is this like a real company? Like I'm waiting four months, like spawns the only thing by, by issue five or six spawns. The only thing that's like remotely on schedule. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like pit number one. I mean, a lot of it, what happened is, you know, Dale Keown released pit number one, and a lot of this is like people moving from six figures to seven figures, you know, yeah. They're like, oh, man, I made a lot of money drawing the Hulk, but I made a million dollars off of one comic book. And then when you yeah. got to sit at the table for 10 hours a day, seven days a week after that, you're going to, you know. Yeah, your, your incentive to uh, kill yourself at the drawing table, I think, drops dramatically. Yeah. So, um, 
But yeah, essentially the fourth issue is just to, and then the devil shows up and he explains that Spawn's powers are finite. And that's what that meter we've been seeing in, which is again, kind of a cool concept. Yeah, they're still, they're still playing with it. I got to tell you, the power meter comes and goes. Uh, it's hard to say anything ever definitively happens with it because what it is kind of changes over time, but it's at least an initial um an interesting conceit, let's say, from the point of superpowers, superheroes, that basically the deal is the more he uses his powers, he can do seemingly endless things. He can teleport. He can hit people with energy blasts. He, he can turn into a white guy. He can turn into a white guy, which I mean, that you know, it's a superpower, it's right? It's a superpower, yes. It's, you know, say. if you're, um, yeah, you know, it allows him to uh, move through different areas of society he might not have otherwise been able to. He can voice especially. opinions in public spaces without being challenged. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is especially you know the early uh, in the early nineties, yeah. So he's got a vast array of uh, powers, and but if he uses them, then he'll run out, and the devil will get his soul. So it's a catch twenty two. Yeah, it's a clever idea. I mean, I think there is like, you know, so we're not going to get to issues eight through 12, but basically everyone, all the reviewers were like, these comics are garbage. And so McFarlane was like, fuck you. I'm going to hire the best comics writers working right now and pay them each $100,000 to write an issue. Um, And you do get kind of a glimpse of like, this mess you've created could be shaped into something good with the right, which never happens, but there was just a little, a little sprinkle of it. But so spawn issue five is interesting for a lot of reasons, but one is it's sort of like, okay, we've established the premise and some kind of key figures and where do we go from there? And it's this really weird one-off issue that's sort of like what spawn play spawns place in the world. He's sort of like a do-gooder. It's sort of like he is a superhero in a way. So again, we start with a really excessive monologue Billy Kincaid is being released for no reason, right? There's no reason why he's so he's a, he's a multiple child murderer. Yeah, and I think it's implied they only really got him on one. Yeah, but still, I think if you kill a kid, even if you're found insane, which uh, but just as an aside, uh, being found not you know not guilty by reason of insanity for murdering children, uh, I don't think it happens a lot. It's a tough defense to mount. And this guy just gives off a vibe of uh, not being too remorseful. So, but you know what? It, it, as I reread it, it, it absolutely makes no sense why he's being released. However, it plays into a thing that Todd comes back to again and again. It's sort of underneath the surface in Spawn writing, which is that like he has disdain for authority and everyone in position of power is kind of corrupt and incompetent. Like the government's in, 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 in kind of like an, in a political sort of way, like, yeah. he's, you know, the government's incompetent, you know, the state's incompetent, I guess the cops are incompetent except for Sam and Twitch, but like, that's kind of the reasoning. It's just like, why it's because this stupid doctor's letting them go and spawns got to set it right. I mean, that's really the reason. Yeah. I love the like they have this hearing and they're like, okay, we're gonna let you go. Like while the hearing's happening, he's like fantasized, fantasy remembering, like murdering children. And then they're ushering him out and he's like smiling and he's like muttering, you scream, I scream, we all scream for ice cream. And nobody and Sam and Twitch are like, what? What's he doing? And they're like, no, oh, he's cool. We're gonna yeah. le- release him into the world. 
Well, okay. Here's, here's where I'm, uh, I'm pulling from um, uh, Todd's mindset. Uh, Sam says, screw your psychiatrist. That man's a freak. And if you think it's sitting behind locked doors for six years is a cure, then you guys are even bigger idiots than I thought. I think I always think of that type of thing as sort of like Todd's mindset, right? It's, it's this very like um, unsophisticated, like ground level, like you experts telling me this, you guys letting a killer walk. Give me a break over here. Like that. <laughs> It's great, man. So it's so wordy too. so many unnecessary words. And uh, yeah, so then I don't know, spawns land in an alley, we get a really excessive news report, which sort of tells us what we've already read with a little bit more information. So then Billy Kincaid immediately like two pages later, he's like gluing children's severed fingers to a piece of paper. <laughs> this guy wastes no time. He has acquired an ice cream truck. He's got an ice cream truck guy suit. He has not shaved his soul patch, which looks very odd. And he looks quite menacing as an ice cream guy. I think a kid would be a little more suspicious, but no, he's his actual, um, whatever you want to call it. His derangement, his motive is besides just killing kids is not really clear. Like, um, rape is not implied. Thank God. I don't think nor, but like, the psychology behind him basically is completely unexplored. He's just, a, he's just a evil kid killer. Yeah. He's just a bad guy. And also what's up with McFarlane and child murderers. Like he did a long one in, uh, this is dark stuff. Man. He, he just is really hung up on this concept of, uh, I mean, I worry about that stuff too, like being a parent, you know, but it's like, uh, Hey man, I think it's, this is, this is dealing with the darkness, man. This is <laughs> spawn. This is like, you know, What's going to happen? You're going to die. Your wife's going to go with your best friend. You're going to, there's kid killers running on the, on the loose. This is confronting the horrors of the world. Um, also, this is, uh, I think a, a, a couple uh, panels of this seem like they're pulling from silence of the limbs, which came out a year before this. Mm. It was one of the biggest movies, you know, ever. Uh, yeah. It, it was, you know, it basically influenced the whole like nineties serial killer, uh, movie genre and like for instance you have a page where Kincaid is uh cross-dressing mm-hmm. um which it, which is sort of abandoned and then not really explained in, and obviously today kind of looks make, like very cringy and everything mm-hmm. but is I mean I look at it and I see the uh buffalo bill from silence of the land although I think he might actually be wearing the scalp of the little girl from the previous page because it's got the same bow and everything like i don't think that's a wig i think that's a child's scalp well ryan now that you say that i'm (laughs) i i think it's a child's scalp (laughs) but he's laughing at the scalp yeah yeah yeah, he's got uh lipstick and kind of a very like over the top like pink perfect pink circles on his on his uh, cheeks um but you know that is i guess it's just sort of this like shorthand back in the day where like if you're a deranged serial killer you're like a transvestite because that like that denotes that you're completely psychotic (laughs) right it's just one one in the same 
Um, I do like, cause then when we see Cyan and it's sort of like, if you didn't connect those dots on your own, like she could be a victim of this guy, but, uh, we see Cyan's, uh, preschool teacher and there's something really authentic. Like, I feel like that woman is modeled after the actual preschool teacher. It's like the most like well-executed character, authentic feeling character design in all of this. It's just like, she's got glasses and big earrings and I don't know. Yeah, Some I of think, the like parenting stuff actually feels like a real person who lives in the world thought of it. Yeah, I, I actually thought that too when I because you know I go and pick my uh, daughter up from school and yeah. have a you know chit chat with the teacher or something. And I was like, oh, okay, like all this other stuff, these like tortured monologues are sort of, I don't know, they're they're like in Todd's head, I guess, and they're sort of about maybe about uh Marvel editors or something. But then this, you're just like, oh, okay, he just kind of pulled from life experience here yeah. and just he knows what a daycare teacher sounds like <laughs> yeah or looks like um yeah. there is also in this i feel like the first sort of like seams are showing there's some kind of rushed looking images and i think probably some ghost inking some of the inking's kind of muddier mm. i think there's a little bit of like studio assistance coming in and doing some of that hatching at this point that's like i want to say when you get into the 20s part of what made me stop reading spawn is there's a period where Greg Capullo is very clearly drawing it and it's credited as Todd McFarlane. And I remember noting that when I was like 12 and being like, you're not fooling me. I can see this. <laughs> um, so just, I don't know. There's just a bunch of splash pages and then uh, Sam and Twitch are rolling up on Billy Kincaid, but then Spawn gets to him first and then he horribly murders him. <laughs> Well, you're skipping over uh, something really important, which is that for some reason, um, there is a backstory that connects Billy Kincaid uh, and Spawn, right? Oh, right? Which is that that the in a very convoluted uh, like flashback, the uh, a parent of one of the is it a parent of one of the dead kids? hires him as a cia agent assassin oh he's like a senator's kid that's the only thing that's yeah like oh yeah that's murdered right. a senator's mm-hmm. kid and he gets yeah, off. he gets six years and you get to get out i mean geez um also i think it's you know implied it's pretty gruesome if he's wearing their scalps and stuff yeah i think the and, senator like had some sort of gaffe or something there's some reason why the senator is discredited in such a so, way that their kid being murdered becomes not a big deal to the public but it becomes yeah, it becomes less of like, oh, this guy's out and he's at it again, and I've got to stop him because I'm like us now. I'm like a supernatural hero, and more. You know, he says in this, there's this great one slash page with Spawn jumping down uh, off buildings, and he just says like, uh, "This is the rationale of a hired gun who's back from the grave with all that's wrong in his life." Quote life. The only way to take his mind off things with his work for an ex-government assassin, that means danger, fear, death. So he's just like, well, I know how to kill people and I'm going to finish, finish the job from, you know, five years ago and go kill Billy Kincaid. So it was very weird to, I think, tie their backstory together. Well, I think Billy Kincaid's like the one that got away, you know, mm-hmm. he's like, I didn't murder this guy when I could. So now I got to murder him. Um, I like the image too of Spawn like jumping through the air. He's like 20 feet in the air, just like jumping in the suburbs over Sam and Twitch's car to Billy Kincaid's house. It's just such a weird visual. I mean, like, how does he get around? Does he just jump through the air? It's not really very clear. So yeah, then he like uh basically Sam and Twitch go into their office and 
Billy Kincaid is like impaled with ice cream sticks and he's got popsicles in his mouth and he's all chained up. I don't know if those are extra chains that were laying around or it's not really clear, but just a classic image that I'll never forget. Yeah. Naked with no genitals hanging in the office. And I want to read what Todd has to say about this issue because Later in Spawning Ground, the letters column on the back page, someone writes in from Australia. And I mean, it's an excessively long letter talking about, um, you know, whether this is whether this is an appropriate story, basically, I guess, um, and how dark it is and, you know, whether we should talk about these things. And apparently it's national news in australia they're talking about it if you can imagine imagine a random comic book number five uh being discussed on the news so it's like a it's in the news media as um as controversial yeah i think uh, that final image was i think it was one of those things where like some parents saw it and freaked out and it became like a talking point yeah good thing my parents were unconcerned with what i was reading. yeah mine too <laughs> i'm looking at cool comics whatever i don't think they, they i don't think they would have cared they knew i was reading stuff like this but todd's response is uh pure todd love this in all honesty david i was quite proud of issue number five this is the first time i wrote a self-contained story in one issue i get tired of people making comments and telling me my job the only reason people make such a big deal about this issue is because it's commercial I could probably do a story where a hundred kids get killed, but as long as it only sells 5,000 copies, nobody would care. So the point then becomes do what you want. Just don't do it successfully. Don't fear. I won't buckle under the pressure because if I did, I wouldn't be standing where I am now. <laughs> you tell him Todd McFarlane too big to fail. It, man. I, I love that. That was his first uh, one and done he's ever written, which, you know, I think is, you know, he probably wanted to to execute and he's, you know, he's going on to hire these uh, big name writers that he's following and he kind of, you know, reveres and influenced him. And he's like, yeah, I want to, I'm going to write like a one and done where spawn, where they're like a serial killer, you know, serial killers were big in the, uh, the big in the mind at the time because of sounds of the lambs, especially, I think he was just like, I got it. I got it. I got a serial killer idea. Issue five. It's gonna get gold. gonna get more gonna get gonna ramp up the darkness in the in the in the blood and the chains even more. So then we got into so six and seven is a two part story, um, and this is I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a there were these VHS tapes you could get of Stan Lee and popular comics creators at the time. The McFarlane one we watched a million times, and I didn't see this one till later. It's on YouTube, but there's a video of Stan Lee overseeing Liefeld and McFarlane creating Overkill. And this was before uh, the formation of Image. I don't know if they got into a legal thing over that, but so this Overkill mafia cyborg character is created by McFarlane and Liefeld. You can actually watch them where like Life, uh, McFarlane's like, ah, I'll put some chains on him. And Liefeld's like, ah, I got to put these big pointy shoulder pads on. Like they're like drawing on the same board, this character. I don't, I think what happened is, <clears throat> um, so uh, my guess is that Todd has full rights to it. And one of the things is that the name had to be changed from overkill to overt kill Overt kill. <laughs> and there was a couple uh, changes uh, it, to characters at first, because they were just creating dozens and dozens of characters like 
um, Youngblood's Bad Rock was initially Bedrock. Yep. Um, and Bad Rock actually works better with what the character is. He's like a teenage boy. But what does uh, Bad Rock even mean? <laughs> does it mean anything? Well, yes, it does. It's a it's a play on Bedrock. First of all, Bedrock is you know from the town of Bedrock, the Flintstones. Sure, but it's also um, like the under an underlying layer of the earth but anyway, yes. right well he's a, he's okay so he's like a rock guy so he's made of bedrock and he's bad rock because he's a badass it makes perfect sense i don't want to get into this with you again <laughs> you know this has really been a, a thing for us for a long time so we're yeah. just gonna agree to disagree uh, but i think what's very funny is on the opening it's the opening page well it's the second page of this issue where you see overt kill coming out of the rubble uh and saying i love this job um it's in a giant caption that's basically a logo name overt kill but then it says in whispered voices some call him overkill in parentheses it has to do with his tendency to go far beyond the necessary means and then it from then on out it refers to him as overt kill but i think it's interesting that he calls him overkill in quotes some in whispered tones call him overkill which i think is his nod to the fact that he has like um tried to you know create this i don't know what arrangement he had with rob liefeld or they, they were all making millions of dollars he probably said who yeah. gives a shit <laughs> well overkill shows uh, up in a bunch of youngblood comics too though I oh think they yeah actually owned this character together um, okay interesting he, because he's still in the comics yeah so overt kill uh it doesn't appear in the comics very much but he brings him back for a few things it's kind of like it's almost like a bit where Overt kill is supposed to be this like tank figure, you know, he's like juggernaut or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just gets his completely like spawn wipes the floor with him every time. Like he's, he, I mean, he completely destroys him in issue seven. He comes back, I don't know, in the thirties or something. And he's gone forever. And then in the early one hundreds, he appears for one issue. And again, spawn just completely destroys him. And then he maybe appears once or twice. I don't remember, but he came back recently um spawn sort of did this thing where he like possessed and reanimated a bunch of these minor villains like cygor overkill and the freak um and maybe another one or two that i can't oh maybe the curse i'm forgetting but the point is is that they're like they're almost like these zombie allies of spawn now that he like um that fight with him so he's still he's still using him so i i uh i don't know what kind of arrangement he ever made with uh rob liefeld about this but it probably can just both use the character i don't know though um so yeah this issue is so again it's all based on this idea that the mob wants to kill spawn for ripping the hearts out of all these mob guys even though he didn't do it and it's not clear why anyone thinks that he did it and then they send over over to kill. So initially, this is sort of a Spider-Man kind of a trope, actually, where initially they fight and Overkill beats the shit out of Spawn. He yeah. like really messes them up. Um, and Spawn won't use his powers because they're finite. Um, and then Spawn goes and gets a bunch of guns. That's the uh the the cliffhanger image is Spawn holding lots of guns for part yes. two. Yeah, and I I also thought it was kind of funny that the the uh, Italian mafia has this like superhuman cyborg hitman that is 
shown like destroying an entire building and like just seems to draw too much attention to the like the criminal underground where you know i I guess you could make the argument that in a world of you know young blood and superheroes the mob needs to level up and get their own cyborg uh, hitman Mm -hmm. but like it seems excessive for their like uh, everything that's under their purview in the criminal world sure um, so then Spawn gets all the guns, issue seven now is the last issue we're going to talk about. Uh, one thing I actually really like, too, there's a few little tidbits. So Spawn learns he can teleport in issue seven and that it's sort of like is this weird, uncomfortable process of like disassembling and reassembling his molecules and it makes him sick. Like, I always liked that as a feature of Spawn, that the teleportation is really uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, when I reread that, I actually re- always remembered these panels from when I was a kid and the description. His molecules are ripped apart one by one and meshed together with the existing molecular structures present, which uh, I don't think quite makes uh, scientific sense, sure. but sounds cool. And then they are and then vacuumed, sucked at the speed of light to a preordained court, uh, location and reassembled as fiercely as they were separated. Put simply, Spawn isn't having fun yet. <laughs> oh, I also like too. I wanted to say from issue six, this is one of the, this is the thing that defines these spawn comics to me. So there's excessive exposition all the time, right? Just people just talking and talking and endless captions and summaries and telling you what you already read. And then things like, why does the mob think spawn is the killer? It's never explained. Or like when spawn and overkill first meet to fight, like, they just both show up like there's no pre there's nothing to explain why they're both there. You know, I can, I call this stuff like uh Saturday morning cartoon logic type yeah. stuff. That's because, you know, when your kids cartoons from that era uh, also weren't very sophisticated, obviously, and plot and how people get to different locations is just sort of ignored a lot, especially <laughs> when it's like fighting. Cause you want to get to the fighting and you're a little kid and you got like 22 minutes minus, you know, with commercial breaks and stuff. So you're just like, you're at a base. And this is like young blood is like this a lot too. It's like they're at a base and, and then a bad guy shows up and you're like, where are they? How did they get here? Yeah. Do they know where their base is. And it doesn't matter. They just break down a wall and they're there, and that's the last scene of the that issue. And then the next issue, they're fighting. And yeah, you just sort of jump around and you get the people into position as quickly as possible without like worrying about the details. And then a lot of the, the end of the issue, like especially Youngblood, is just like another guy shows up. It's like Darkthorn is here. And you're like, who is that? What does that even mean? <laughs> What's he want? He what is, why he is he there? Young... Is he yeah? He's there to fight Youngblood. I mean, it just that, which is what you want to see, I guess. It's true. Um, so then we meet Bobby, the homeless guy who becomes, he's an ongoing character, right? Yeah. He's around for a while. I think so he, then, yeah. and then Spawn has a flashback of his murder and he sees the murder as a skeleton. Spoiler alert. We'll find out later. It's chapel, which gets retconned later, right? Yeah. Yeah. It gets retconned to uh, Jessica priest, who is a, uh, just a character that, um todd makes up who's a woman who basically occupies the same role and then confusingly she appears a few times later and then confusingly she's around a lot now she's in this like spawn universe she's she spawn because there's um there's like a hundred spawns now i mean there's like endless spawns uh todd's churning them out and she's a spawn ally she's like the only woman spawn so of course she's called she spawn but 
why that if she is still his killer or why they're allied is kind of not explored uh in a satisfactory manner i think also at some point you basically learn that between melbolgia and then mammon another major villain for spawn for like 100 issues you know all his memories are messed with and you go through all these things like at one point uh it's revealed that like Al Simmons like punches Wanda in the stomach when she was pregnant with their kid and like oh. causes a uh, a miscarriage and what it's, like, everything Wait, I ab- that he was infertile was the problem. Well, it constantly changes as he learns wow. more pieces of his life. But then I I think that was done to sort of like make Al irredeemable in a way and like his life was a lie and he wasn't as good as a you know, because they're you're trying to like keep the narrative fresh and change the status quo. And it's like, oh, actually, Al Simmons was an asshole when he was uh, alive. But then I think that too was retconned to where it was just like an implanted memory. Because, you know, after you after you do a comic for 30 years, it becomes convoluted. Sure. <laughs> also just think that <laughs> I, I forget who even wrote that story or whatever. But I think at some point just Todd had to return to his like wife guy roots and just be like, okay, we can't make spawn a wife beating killer of his child and so i think it was retconned away i think that's fair look protagonist of a series shouldn't have punched his pregnant wife in the stomach killing their unborn child i think that's that's, you lose your audience a little bit the devil's trickery was what that was (laughs) so then spawn he abandons his cape which kind of not just never he just gets it back later without explanation so this is a weird one too so then he goes he like blasts the shit out of this mob guy's office to uh tell the mob guy uh to summon overkill so they actually do have a scheduled meeting this time but this mob if he kills this mob guy like all his problems are solved but he doesn't do that because this mob guy's sending overkill like i don't know well i told you man spawn doesn't solve his problems he creates more of them you know he's (laughs) a uh and, and then to the extent that you can say that there's um, some deep themes or intentional writing here, I mean, I think that's what you can pull out of Spawn is that he is constantly uh, self-sabotaging and acting impulsively and angry and not, not getting ahead, man, not planning <laughs> out his actions very well. So, so don't be a, like, don't be like Spawn. It's a cautionary story. And I also like yeah. the shit, the shit talking in these fights too are so like juvenile. They're so like, you know, grade school yard. You look like crap, the smelly oozy kind. Now I'm going to stomp you, you piece of turd. <laughs> it's like, these are the. Yeah. You, I, I know that you piece of turd was cla- classic insult. I, I would say before I, uh, before I killed someone, but it sets up spawn to say on the next page bad joke yeah double page blows blows a hole in them and like a a vert a page you have to turn sideways to read um beautiful stuff yeah and just shoots him for two pages or i guess it's three pages because that's a spread and then uh that's it he just blows the shit out of him and he blows up the pier and that's that this concludes our run of spawn he blows it up with an elect- electromagnetic bomb so that there's no uh, no evidence behind. No right. evidence is left behind, which is what you want to do after a big old uh, big old fight. After you blow up a mafia cyborg. So uh, final thoughts on this run of Spawn? 
Excellent stuff. Um, <laughs> five out of it five just, stars. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's hard to assess objectively, right? Like yeah. it's, it, it's not even a proper run in some ways. I mean, it is, it is a run. It's, it's Todd McFarlane's uninterrupted solo run on spawn, which doesn't exist after that. I mean, he, he comes back and writes and draws issues, but not for very long. Yeah. I think he does like 13 through 15 or something. And then that's it. You know, I mean, I guess, he's feeling he has an initial idea that is strong and has ideas behind it. And those ideas are this like tortured wife guy thing. Like at the beginning of issue four, the captions really kill me. You know, he says he gives her, uh, Terry gave her what, what, uh, he never could have delivered a child. That means Simmons had been the problem. Now he feels like less of a man. And then this is this is this is spawn right here. No wife, no identity, no pride. That's that's spawn. And I think I mean he's just he's like riffing off this like melodramatic um wife guy stuff and trying to like sort out who this character is. And it's all just you know made up as 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 he goes along. And it continues to be like that for uh quite a long time until he brings in uh some writers later who kind of make it, you know, relatively well, a lot more coherent. I mean, this is really like feeling around like issue to issue, you know, uh, issue five is going to be a one and done about a child killer that, I mean, that was like, I think a, probably an on the spot decision, right? Like th this stuff is not written with the coherency of like um, coherence of today's comics or even what other professional writers were doing back then. Well, uh, it's definitely I'm amazing. Still going strong after 300 and something issues. You know, I'm still buying it. I mean, God knows how many, uh, how many, how much money I've given uh, to Ted, uh, Todd over the years. Um, it's, I mean, what they were on like 230 some spawn comics and probably uh, at least a hundred other issues of other series over the time, over the years. So yeah, I mean, I've, I've paid, uh, I don't know well over a thousand dollars to read spawn which i mean you know in monthly increments of three dollars is definitely not a lot but i i've uh i've <laughs> transferred i'm at least a uh a, a responsible for a small portion of uh todd mcfarland's vast wealth i think you spackled his uh a, a wall in his workspace or something yeah. with your with your <laughs> contribution but um i don't know i just uh, hopefully this was an it's sort of like you've you've read all these what do you do with that so i hope that you've, you some practical application came from appearing on this podcast so we got to wrap up here but before we do one of my question for guests always is if you were to do your own run of a comic book you can write and or draw or you can pick a artist if you want um without any editorial intervention a, a good long run of something what would you do on something that already exists yeah, sometimes people go, oh, I, just, I mean, you can say that too, but I think that's sort of the fan answer. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, completely uninterrupted, whatever I want to do. I mean, I have to say uh, X-Men because that's the biggest, that would be the biggest thing I would want. I would love to write uh, Judge Dredd. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm like, I'm like ready to go on Judge Dredd. I, uh, I would love to draw it too, but that's probably not practical, but writing, I have more ideas for specifically Judge Dredd, mm -hmm. I would say is the thing I would love to get my hands on. 
uh also i mean i got i, I got spawn ideas like i <laughs> i legitimately have spawn ideas that i kind of like i'm i'm getting more into you know doing some genre comics and if it works out and i end up writing some stuff i'm i don't know maybe i'll i'll try to pitch it i don't know what what, what my percent uh chance is but i have i I've read it enough that you start getting ideas and you're like, Hey, no, he hasn't done my, I have a, a big idea for spawn. He hasn't done yet. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll pitch Todd one day. I don't know that he'll go for it, but I might try. Well, that's one of the great ironies too. I know Eric Larson wrote spawn for a while and he talked about how McFarlane was constantly intervening and changing things he'd finished, which is like why McFarlane left mainstream comics. That he he became yeah. the editor that he hated. I love that. Well he yeah he uh maintains a tight grip on it and has uh it you know he's written it now himself for at least I think the last 10 years or something like that. But you know he brings in people occasionally and they start leaving the book after a while and what you see is like the first issue will say it's written by that person Second issue will say it's written by that person with plot from Todd. And then it will say with additional writing with Todd, you know, I mean, it's his character. He gets to do what he wants, but yeah, I get the impression that you, you don't get your hands on a title like spawn and have free reign at all. <laughs> My favorite was when Eric Larson, he was very public about it, but he had his own character of dragon appear in spawn in a crossover. And he was like, Todd would rewrite dragon's dialogue He's like, he would then rewrite my own character's dialogue without checking with me. I love it. So, wow. uh, and what are you working on? I'm working on uh, my first monthly comic book series, my first uh, floppy comic book series called Justice Warriors that comes out in June from Ahoy. And uh, it's a six issue series, so it's not ongoing. Um but we do have plans to kind of make it a, a, a serial thing if it's successful. So I'm doing it with this guy, Ben Clarkson, and we're co-writing. He's drawing. I'm lettering and doing covers, which is sort of a weird combination of uh, things to do as a comic book creator. But I like it a lot. And it's a uh, it's a dystopian mutant uh, sci-fi future satire thing. So it's uh, very violent, very political, very funny. Um, it has elements of... Uh, of of it actually has elements of judge dread in it for sure because it's a cop thing but we're kind of doing our own uh our own take on it and that that's the main thing right now is is me trying to get that off the ground and then maybe do some more stuff like this right on well i look forward to reading that uh while i wait for your run on spawn and of course the nib <laughs> right the nib.com is constantly turning out content sometimes by me so that yeah. makes it a great website at uh, the nib we got the uh Cities issue is going to press now. Uh, so that's coming out next. And uh, there's generally new content online pretty much every day, right? Yeah, we publish like two comics every weekday. So a lot, fair, fair amount. Right on. Where can I find you online if I want to read your social media and all that? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm just Matt Boars everywhere you go. You know, mattboars.com, Matt Boars on Twitter, all the other Instagram, everything. Man, you got a you got a two syllable name, your first and last name together. That's that's got to be nice. <laughs> yeah, and there's only one other. I think there's only one other. There's another Matt Bores, um, oh. and I I don't know. He may, he might be squatting on uh, the TikTok. I don't know. Maybe, ah. I, I haven't checked it. I, I don't do TikTok, so that's the only one I haven't I haven't got. But I feel overall like uh, you know, if I had a real, you have a long last name. There's probably not a lot of people with that combination of names, right? <laughs> 
yeah, but it's just, I can't, my name can never be my, my social media handle. Right. So, right. Yeah. It's a little, <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, man. It's been, I mean, I've talked with you about spawn informally many times, but I've always wanted to get it on record. So I just wanted the public to know that uh, Matt Boris is actually a huge spawn fan. It's a fascinating secret story about you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, man. It's good to all talk right. about it. And with that, we'll bring this episode of The Runs to a close. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about me and my work, my website is ohyesverynice.com. That's O-H-Y-E-S-V-E-R-Y-N-I-C-E.com. Also, I'm working on a comics biography of Muhammad Ali. You can learn more about this project at patreon.com slash ohyesverynice, where you can subscribe to both digital and print Editions. I can also be contacted at ohyesverynice at gmail.com. You can send me episode suggestions for the runs. And if you send me an email saying you heard about it on this podcast, I will send you a free digital copy of one of the chapters of the Ali comic. Home base for this podcast is theruns.blogspot.com, but it can also be downloaded or streamed on all platforms where podcasts are available. All the best ones. Please rate and review the show and share this podcast on social media and more importantly in person thanks so much and see you next time on the runs